faithful helpers in the back that will hap- be happy to help you out. Everybody got one? Okay. Well, we are in chapter 8 of the Confession. Some of you uh, like to go on hikes. Um, we've probably all at some point been to the top of a mountain, whether we drove there or hiked there. Um, but I think especially with, with, a, with a hike, um, there's something of a reward, right? When you hit the mountain peak and you get that glorious view to look off into the creation in the beautiful country we live in, you get to see the, the handiwork of our Lord as you look off into the, to the uh, landscape and see all that God has done. And as we come to uh, chapter 8, this is sort of the mountaintop of the confession, maybe the, the pinnacle, if you will, of the things that we will consider in this confession. Um, we've been sort of building our way up, hiking up the mountain, if you will, over the last seven chapters, we began understanding the Word of God, the Scriptures. Um, chapter 2, we learned of the doctrine of God, and we learned that God is one, and yet God is three. So we discussed God's unity, but also God's trinity, and we learned there of the three persons of the Godhead. Of course, the second person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we talked in chapter 4 about creation, God's creative act, and of course Paul says that creation was through Christ and for Christ, Lord willing, in the coming weeks we'll talk about that on Sunday morning. Um, We went into chapter 6 and we saw the need of Christ, the need of the mediator, that man is fallen in Adam, hopelessly lost and cursed in his sin. Um, We looked at chapter 7 last week and we learned that this God condescends to man. He stoops down on man's level and he communes with us. He relates to us by way of covenant. And we learn that he promised to send his son, the Lord Jesus, to be the mediator of that covenant. And today we are introduced to properly to the mediator of the covenant of grace, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to this mountaintop peak, if you will, and we're looking off into the landscape, and the landscape is the rest of the confession, and as we stand upon the rock that is Christ and look off into uh, what comes after this chapter, we see basically all that Christ has done for sinners. What, what follows is because of the work of the mediator, and you can see just if you look at the table of contents in the confession it is because the mediation of Christ that we are, have been, or all believers will be, effectually called and drawn by the Spirit to the Son. It is because of the work of the Son that we have been justified and adopted and sanctified, that we've been given that precious gift of saving faith, that we've been granted repentance that leads unto life. It is the Lord Jesus, through our union with Him, that we can now do good works that are pleasing to the Lord because we've been cleansed of our sin. Um, 
It is the Lord Jesus that will preserve us. It is because of the work of the Lord Jesus that we can have assurance. It is because of the work of the Lord Jesus that we're no longer condemned by the law, but that we can actually keep the law in a way that pleases the Lord. It is, of course, because of the Lord Jesus that we have the gospel and the grace therein. We have Christian liberty, freedom from the bondage of man-made oppressive rules, and freedom to live according to God's will, because of what Christ has done. We worship on the Sabbath day as we, as we celebrate the resurrection and also anticipate the coming Sabbath rest that we'll have in Christ. You see, on and on and on, all of this that we will consider is because of the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And so we have before us a very important chapter um, it, is, it is very often in the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of God where heresy begins, where errors begin. So much of the heresies of, throughout history have been related to these two things, the two natures of Christ or the three persons of the Godhead. And we understand if we build on a faulty foundation, on an errant foundation, then the whole structure, our faith, is going to be unsound if it's built on that um, unsound foundation. And so uh, we're going to talk about some technical things tonight. Um, I think it's important that we at least familiarize ourselves with some terms, at least have them in your ear. Uh, But I just want to say that our aim tonight is worship. Our aim tonight is praise of our dual-natured Redeemer, That's the goal. The goal here is not that you leave and you say, I memorized three Latin words tonight. Praise be to God. No, the goal tonight is that we are in awe of the God-man. Amen? That's the point. That's why we've come tonight. So I just want to say that from the beginning. I'll give you some. We're not going to get crazy technical, but I'll give you some language just to give it to you. Um, But really, we're here to worship the God-man. That's the aim. And so if I could pray one more time and ask God's, Uh, divine assistance. Lord, we come now before you as we open up this glorious, wonderful, and weighty topic, Lord. And I am very um, aware this evening of my own limitations, Lord, of of the limitation of my understanding, limitation of language, um, just limitation of my own piety to speak of the Lord Jesus in this way, and try to, try to discern, try to understand how you have revealed your Son to us, Father. And so we pray now that we might be given ears to hear, that we might be given hearts to respond in adoration, in faith, in worship, uh, that you might, that you might um, just be with us in this time. Give me grace, Lord. Give me clarity of speech. Please keep anything that is untrue or unsound from coming to the ears of your people. Lord, um, we, we, we ask for divine assistance now, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to look just at the first two paragraphs tonight. There is a lot here, and um, some men more gifted than myself have squeezed this whole chapter in one 45-minute talk, but I just think there's too much here to do that. Um, and so as we've, as we've seen Oftentimes in the confession, the first chapter is something of a summary statement, and then the rest of the chapter will expound the pieces that are found there. So we'll look at at paragraphs one and two as they are foundational to the doctrine and to the chapter, and then 
Next week, Lord willing, we'll sort of parse out the, the subsequent par- paragraphs. Uh, you have your outline there on the front of the handout. We have the ordination of the mediator, the identity of the mediator. We'll look at those two tonight. And then we'll see the qualification, the work, and the office. Again, Lord willing, um, next week. So let's get right into it, as the time seems to go quickly these nights, at least for me. Um, paragraph 1 of chapter 8 says there that it pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them, excuse me, between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. And so we see the divine purpose of God here. God's divine pleasure is accomplished. It pleased the Lord. And we see that often in the confession, that language, that God does things according to His good pleasure. It pleased God to decree from eternity past. It pleased the Lord in His eternal, always, if you will, purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus to be the mediator of the covenant of grace, or we might say synonymously the new covenant to use Bible language. We see in this paragraph that it sort of looks back and looks forward at the same time. Uh, There's some things that we've talked about here, but they're in a bit of a different, or I want to give you a different um, words for them. These things are not vital for your Christian faith, but I think they're important as you read and you come in contact with language and words that you say, okay, I've I've heard that. Maybe you're already familiar with these. Um, But we see firstly in this paragraph uh, what's been called the pactum salutis. So we're using Latin words here. In the word pactum, you hear the word pact, a pact that is formed between two parties. The word salutis means salvation. So you have the pact of salvation or the covenant of salvation or the covenant of redemption. So that that language should be familiar to you, covenant of redemption. So we see firstly this eternal plan of salvation, that the persons of the Godhead together decreed that the the Son would come at, at, at some point in history, in time and space, He would become incarnate, He would take on flesh, He would live, He would die, and He would rise. So that's called the pactum Salutis. It is the eternal purpose of God, as we read there. Um, he, he, he chose to give a people to the Son. But we see then, secondly, the historia salutis. Now you hear there the word historia, the word history, right? Uh, this is the history of salvation. Um, when we speak about the historia salutis, we're talking about salvation actually happening. If you and I have a plan, a plan is good, but a plan has to be executed, Right? A plan is, is, is great, but ultimately a plan is a piece of paper or it's something on your mind or however that looked for the persons of the Trinity. A plan is not really a thing until it is actually executed, until it happens. 
And so the Historia Salutis is the second person of the Trinity becoming actually incarnate, being born of the Virgin, coming to this earth, living a perfect life, dying a substitutionary death, rising victoriously from the grave, ascending to the right hand of the Father, and of course he will one day come to judge the living and the dead. And so it is the actual accomplishing of redemption, the Historia Salutis. This is the history of salvation. And it's important at times to distinguish what is the Bible talking about. Are we talking about Historia Salutis? Are we talking about Jesus actually accomplishing salvation? Or are we talking about number three? This is the one, if you're familiar with any of these, this is probably the one that's the most familiar, and that's the Ordo Salutis, or the order of salvation. Here, we're talking about the application of the work of Christ, right? So for you to be a Christian, more has to happen than Jesus dying on the cross, right? Jesus died on the cross, but whatever he did there, it has to come to you, right? It has to be applied to you. You were not saved 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. And so the benefits of what Jesus has done has to be applied to your soul in time and space. And so that is the application of salvation. Another way to say this, you might have heard this language before, is redemption planned, redemption accomplished, and redemption applied. And so we see that that separation there. The the confessors are sort of walking us through these three modes, if you will, of salvation. We also see a list of ten things, ten titles, ten, ten designations given to the Lord Jesus Christ in this first chapter alone, this first paragraph. Um, we won't parse these all out, but I think it's worth just reading them. Uh, we see firstly that he is the Lord Jesus, Calvin was just declaring that, confessing that to us as well, professing that he's the Lord Jesus. We see here that he is the only begotten son. There the confession is reaching back into chapter 2, connecting that, that, that triune God. Here he is, his second person is the mediator. We see number three, that he is the mediator. Number four, we see he's a prophet. Five, we see he's a priest. Six, we see he's a king. Lord willing, next week we'll, we'll get into those a bit more. We also see, number seven, that he is, he is the head. He is the head. What does it say exactly? He is the, the head and savior of the church. Now, I want to read to you something from the, the, the London Baptist Confession. If you know the answer to this, um, don't spoil it for everyone else. But this is a, this is a paragraph from the Confession that talks about this headship of Christ, headship of Christ. It says this, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense, be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, 
that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So firstly, yes, the confession just said that the Pope is Antichrist. Secondly, though, I want to ask you, where would you expect to find a statement about the Antichrist in the confession? Anyone, anyone have a thought? If you were, were going to go, where would the confession speak about the Antichrist? Where would we commonly turn to? Last things. Yes, the end. Exactly. Yes. We would probably think that it was in this section on eschatology, right? And many Christians, you know, today especially, stumble over this statement about the Pope being Antichrist um, because they, they think of it in the context of eschatology. Now, when we hear Antichrist, we have been very much conditioned and influenced by something called premillennial dispensationalism. Um, that system of doctrine, not the premillennial part, but the dispensational part, uh, was about 200 years yet to be born when this confession was written. So it was not a thing in the 1600s. So they're not thinking in a dispensational mindset. We've been conditioned. Maybe you hold to that position. Maybe you did one day. The premillennial side is very historic, maybe even from the first century, certainly second century. The dispensational side is late 1800s. But because of its influence in America, we're often thinking of the Antichrist being one single man that's going to be raised up before the end, before the tribulation or in the tribulation. And he's going to be sort of a demonic figure that's going to dominate the world. Um, that view of the singular Antichrist does fit in an amillennial and postmillennial scheme. Some believe in a singular man, the. But notice, I just want to point out that the confession did not say that he is the Antichrist, but that he is Antichrist. John said that there are many Antichrists today, right? Those that oppose Christ. But what they're trying to say is that Christ is the supreme sovereign head of the church. The problem today, beloved, is that the Pope claims to be the head of the church. He, came, he claims to be the vicar of Christ on the earth, a little Christ. And so they were vehemently saying that is repulsive, that that is to claim to be the head of the church is to put yourself in the position of the Lord Jesus. And they don't mince words there with their view on, on the Pope, that he is the son of perdition. He is the one that exalted, exalted himself in the church against Christ in all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Um, that is actually in the chapter on the church, not the chapter on last things. It's 26 four. Um, Jesus is the head of the church. Amen. We also see that he is the savior of the church. We see that he is the heir of all things. Jesus will inherit everything under, uh, in heaven and on the, on the earth. And he is the judge of the world. And so we see these 10 sort of high level titles of Christ. Glorious things to consider. Um, again, as always, the first uh, paragraph is something of a summary statement. It summarizes what is going to come in the rest of the chapter, but it's also connecting us to chapter 7 um, as we heard about this covenant that was revealed in the gospel, promised to Adam, and now we have this Christ, the one that is to come, who is that covenant 
mediator. Um, we'll spend the rest of our time looking at paragraph two and the identity of, of the mediator, who this Jesus is. So let me read there, paragraph two. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things He has made, did, when the fullness of time was complete, take upon Him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Um, There's a lot there. There's a lot there, and there's some technical stuff in there if you're picking it up. There's some things that are challenging for us as we think about Christ. Again, there are two things that the church has stumbled over throughout the centuries, two areas that are the source of most of the heresies, and it's the two natures of Jesus or the three persons of the Godhead. Those are things that so often men have come to and said, I can't make sense of this, so we need to somehow logically parse this out and make it make sense for our finite mind. And as soon as we try to perfectly package the the two natures of Christ, we end up veering off into some ditch of unorthodoxy. So what we want to do is try to articulate how the Bible has revealed Jesus to us and just stop there and praise, and bow, in awe. Amen? So we see the two natures of the Lord Jesus. The two natures. So firstly, He is fully God. He is fully God. Now, the evangelical church has been, this has been a bedrock of the evangelical church, that Jesus is God. I think this is a strong point, has been a strong point. We, we, um, we stand on this confession. Now, you know, things are weird in our day. Um, and there's always areas of, of error, but this has been an area where the church has tried to, to, to stand strong. Um, I have a quote there from James Renahan. He says, All that we can say and do say about God, we must say about the Lord Jesus Christ. All that we can and do say about God, we must say about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see three things here in this section about his deity, about the fact that he is God. You have those, I think, on your handout. The first one, letter A, is his personal identity. How is he identified personally in this chapter, in this paragraph? Um, We hear here that he is the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity. 
He is the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Now, I said in the beginning and have been saying, I think all along, that the confession needs to be read, as it's been said, side to side, right? These, these chapters, these doctrines, they don't stand on their own as, this, as if they, they just stand in isolation, but they all build off one another and are interconnected to one another. So when we hear this language of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, we're immediately brought back to chapter 2. As we learn there about the God that we serve, the God that we worship, the only God, uh, we read there in paragraph 3 of chapter 2, that in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, or you can use the word persons, the Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And so the the confessors are bringing us back to that chapter, that as we learned about the triune God, we learned that one of the persons of the Godhead is the one that has come to redeem us of our sin. I know we've heard that a thousand times, but that's an incredible, glorious truth that God came to us to rescue us from our sin. And so his personal identity, he's the Son of God, he's the second person of the Holy Trinity, Secondly, we see his divine nature, or letter B, his divine nature. Now, it says there that he is being very and eternal God. So he is completely God and has always been God there. Amen? He's very God and he is eternal God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory. He could say to Philip, if you have seen me, a man in the flesh, you have seen the Father. He represented the Father in such a way. He was in his image of one substance and equal with him. I shared a meme in the church chat. I thought it was funny. Um, maybe you got it, maybe you didn't. Uh, there, was a, there, was a de- there was a debate in the church in, three, in the 300s, um, really over one single letter. I mean, people died for one Greek letter. That's how serious uh, these men took this doctrine. And the debate was over the terms. I think I gave them to you there. Yes. Um, homo usios or homeo usios. Now, homo means same. And so homo Usios is of the same substance or of the same stuff. And homeo, usios, is of similar substance or of similar stuff. And as the story goes, there was a heretic by the name of Arius. Our modern Jehovah's Witnesses believe his same belief that he uh, believed about Christ. He was famous for saying there was a time when the Son was not that Jesus was deified by the Father, but he was a created being. He created Jesus first, exalted him in some divine sense, gave him the authority and ability to create, but the Father was unique from the Son. And as the story goes, the man named St. Nick, we get Santa Claus today, um, walks up to Arius and slaps him across the face in the middle of the Council of Nicaea. 
That's as the story goes. So you often see at Christmas, a time of punching heretics and this and that. But I love the meme as the kid's asking Santa Claus, homoousios or homoousios? And he says, huh? He says, you're not the real Saint Nick. <laughs> now, a few years back, maybe it was four years ago, I was here in this pulpit and I was preaching from the Gospel of John. And I was preaching on homoousios and homoousios. And I had a lot of blank stares in the church. And I, I knew that these things were important. And you sort of leave the pulpit saying, you know, is that, is, that too, is that too heady for Sunday morning, for normal church? You know, am I, am I bringing in stuff that's just not helpful? Um, but I thought it was. You don't need to leave, leave here and memorize these things. But the point is, is that Jesus is of the same stuff as the Father. Well, four years later, about a month ago, I get a text one day from a brother that was there at that time. And he texts me out of the blue, and he says, Thank you. I'm rejoicing in the fact that you preached on homoousios. It has, it has formed and shaped my understanding of the Lord Jesus ever since. And I was just like awestruck. <laughs> Praise God for this, what seems to be obscure teaching that impacted this brother so long ago and has shaped how he understands the doctrine of Christ. That's not anything to say about me, but just that God's word does not return void. And these things matter to us. These things matter to us. Um, and so they died for that one Greek word to say that, no, Jesus is of the same stuff as the Father. He is fully God, very God of very God. Why don't we open our Bibles and read the text that I started with, and that is in Philippians 2. And feel free to interject and stop me if you have a question or a comment Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Homo means same. Sadly, that's a word that we're familiar with today. So Philippians chapter 2, there's a lot of texts we could look at to, to talk about the godness of, of our Lord, but this is a profound text. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, if you were to open up 10 solid evangelical Bible translations, you would see a variety of, of, of translations of that word grasped. Because translators are trying to faithfully translate an obscure Greek statement, but also uh, they want to translate it linguistically correct, but also theologically correct, right? I, I believe the NASB is the same. I looked it up today. Um, I know the New King James is different. Trying to understand what it means that, that Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped. Um, let's just notice firstly that it says there that Jesus was in the form of God. Um, that doesn't mean that he sort of had a God shape. Uh, the word is morphe. We hear the, the word morph there. Um, 
But he was God, is what he's saying there. He was in the form, in the substance of God. He was equal to God, and he did not count the equality that he shared with God something to be hung on to or something to be used to his own advantage. Meaning, he did not see the fact that he was equal with God something to use as an excuse to relieve him from the task of becoming the mediator in humbling himself. He could have, right? In a sense, I'm I'm the Lord of glory, Um, but he did not play that card, if you will, but he humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, by becoming a man and assuming a human nature. We'll get there. Um, So he didn't hang on to that divine right, says that he emptied himself. That's another very challenging word for us to wrestle with. Many heresies or um, errant views of Christ have come from this passage. As people have tried to wrestle with that, I think maybe even at times in good faith. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? That he somehow lay aside his deity for a time? That he, that he stopped being God? Did he lay aside his divine privileges for a time? I think it's right for us to say that this is, this is addition by subtraction. He emptied himself because he added, he, he, he assumed to himself a human nature. He, he remained to be God always. He can't stop being God. He can't give that up. But he becomes a man, thus becoming weak. He takes on weakness, as we'll see, and infirmity. I'm getting ahead of myself a bit. Difficult things to wrestle with, but we want to just go where the text goes and be okay to not have to logically make it work perfectly in a way that we think is right. Um, what the what the the Baptist and the con- Congregationalists and the Presbyterians and these three confessions, you know, Westminster, Savoy, and the London, Second London, have done is taken language right out of the Nicene Creed, and I've given you that. Language, I think, um, in your handout there, um, it says in the Nicene Creed, you hear echoes in the, in the confession, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten Son of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, uh, begotten, not made. And then it says there being of one substance, homoousios, with the Father, by whom all things were made, both things in heaven and things on earth. And the confession says that he is of one substance and equal with him who made the world and upholds and governs all things that he has made. And so clearly we want to confess that Jesus is co-equal. Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. There was not a time when the Son was not. The Son has always existed. He always was in eternal glory with his Father. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Any, any, any questions or comments there? Any clarification? Okay. Thirdly, we see, we see, so we saw his personal identity, we saw his divine nature, and we see, let us see now, divine actions being attributed to the Lord Jesus. It says there that he's equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made. And so again, we're, we're reaching back into the chapters that have come before. And we're reaching back into chapter 4 on the doctrine of creation. And in chapter 5 on the doctrine of providence. 
and we're attributing God's external actions. Remember, God has a decree. The Baptist Catechism says that God executes his decree by the works of creation and providence. Those are the external works of God. And here those works or those actions, if you will, are attributed to the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a creator and he governs all things by his providence. Let me read to you from a Puritan Edward Lay or Edward Lye. He says, He is God, not by office, nor by favor, nor by similitude, nor in a figure, as sometimes angels and magistrates are called gods, but by nature. He is equal and coessential with His Father. There is one Godhead common to all the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and therefore it is said that He was in the form of God, Philippians 2.6, and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, lo, an equality to God the Father ascribed to Him. He is not God in any secondary or inferior manner, but is in the very form of God equal to Him, the Godhead of all the three persons being one and the same. As Jesus says in John eight fifty eight, before Abraham was, I am. And they said, Amen, brother. <laughs> no, they picked up stones to kill him, to put him to death because they, 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 they called him a blasphemer. Right? And when people deny that and say, well, you know, he, he said that. He didn't mean that. The, the men there knew what he meant. It's very clear in the text. I've heard so many guys try to scoot around that when you're talking about the deity of Christ. Well, no, they knew precisely what he meant, and they wanted to take his life because of it. Of course, John uh, one one. maybe we'll read that in a little bit. So the church, at least in our context, in America, in our lives, or what have you, has done pretty well here on, on the deity of, of Jesus. Now, we know that in our day, and especially in this pluralistic place we live in, there's all sorts of wacky views about Christ, uh, certainly. But in the believing evangelical church, the deity of Christ is, is usually a pretty solid doctrine for us. Where we get confused, I think, and have some trouble is with his humanity, with him being fully man. Uh, we get that he's God, and we get that he became a man, but how does that work? Anybody want to parse that out for us? How does it work that he can be God and man, right? Um, a, a, a brother once said, you know, sometimes things just stick with you. Um, but that he's not God with a bod, right? So he's not God that goes into his, his telephone booth like Superman and, you know, takes off his Clark Kent uniform. He puts on a, a sort of skin suit. He comes down as this divine being that just has a body that's sort of walking around pretending to be a man, it's not what the Bible teaches about our Lord. James Renahan says here, now, all that we can and do say about man, we must say about Jesus. Now, there's a qualifier there, right? As a confession says, yet without sin. Um, but we want to recognize that, that sin is not of the essence of humanity. Right? God made Adam and Eve good. Amen? Now, this world is cursed and fallen, but sin is not inherent in to what it means to be man. Sin comes later, after creation. Man was not born, fallen, corrupted with a sinful nature. And so 
sin is not of the essence of what it means to be man made in the image of God. And so Jesus is a human being, fully man. Galatians chapter 4 in verse 4 is alluded to there. And Paul says here now, this is historia salutis language, the history of salvation. But when the fullness of time had come, when the, the right time that God had ordained, when it was the day, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so Paul wants to say clearly that he's born of woman. Now we have to, we have to take the whole scripture in, in mind when we interpret that passage. We know that he was born not with an earthly father, right? Not through natural means. He was, he was born by the Holy Spirit coming upon, as it says, the Virgin Mary. Nonetheless, he's, he's born of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the line of David. He, he has her DNA in her. I don't think it's right to say that, that God implanted everything that was necessary and Mary's just sort of a, a, a womb that is used. But she, that's her son, right? In the sense that, that, that a woman would have a son today. Now, how, how do we wrestle with the fact that he doesn't have a sin nature? Um, we can ask him when we get there, amen, to have that fully explained. Um, but clearly the Bible, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is impeccable without sin. So let's read again, paragraph 2, about halfway through. Um, it says there, to take upon him. Now he takes upon himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so Jesus has the body of a man. Jesus has the soul of a man. Jesus has the weakness of a man, the emotions of a man. This is where much heresy has sprouted up. What do we do about these two natures of Christ? Are they blended? Are they confused? Are they somehow coming together? We want to say clearly that the divine nature does not become a human being. God does not become a man in the sense that the, the, the godness of Jesus becomes a, a human God. And the human nature of Christ does not take on divine attributes. He is a man. Um, they're distinct from one another, his natures, yet they are united in one person. As it says there, there is no confusion or composition of the natures. This is a quote from the eminent divine John Owen. Let me read this to you. Each nature, thus united in Christ, is entire and preserves unto itself its own natural properties. For he is no less perfect God for being made man, nor no less a true perfect man, consisting of soul and body, with all their essential parts, by that nature's being taken into subsistence with the Son of God. His divine nature still continues. He's immense, omniscient, omnipotent, infinite in holiness. And in his human nature, he is finite, limited, and before his glorification, subject to all infirmities of life and death that the same nature in others absolutely considered, this is an interesting word, is obnoxious unto. I had to look that up. 
in the faithful 1828, and it uh, means answerable to or liable to. Um, in each of these natures, we'll see this next week, he acts suitably unto the essential properties of that nature. So as God, he made all things. As God, he upholds all things. As God, by the word of his power, he fills heaven and earth. But as man, he lived, he hungered, he suffered, he died, and he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. This is from John Owen. I'm not sure what the source is. It's called uh, A Brief Declaration and Vindication of the Doctrine of the Trinity. It was a footnote of uh, James Renahan's. So the confession says there that Jesus shared all the common infirmities of man. This is where we get uncomfortable, I think. This is where we get troubled as we wrestle with the fact that Jesus is fully man. And we, and we want to feel like, no, he has to have supernatural connection with God. He's getting constant divine revelation. Certainly he has the spirit beyond measure. The spirit is working in Christ as in no other man. Um, but let me read to you from Luke 2.52. It says there that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So we have to recognize that Jesus Christ grew in wisdom. In favor. Yeah. Um, Richard Barcelos, who likes to throw out these little gotcha, little whatever to get you thinking, likes to say that Jesus learned hermeneutics. Jesus had to learn the Hebrew language so that he could read the scriptures. Jesus had to learn how to eat and walk and talk. He was not faking it as a baby sitting there saying, one day I'm going to unveil my glory. He was a human being. He's learning of his own ministry as he's singing the Psalms, as they ascend to the temple. He is a man, yet without sin, yet without sin. Again, sin then is not inherent to what it means to be human. Sin is not of the essence of what it means to be a man. And we see that this divine nature and this human nature is united in one person. So we're going to talk about this one person. Anybody have any thoughts there on his humanity? Any, any pushback or any questions? Yeah, So the, 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 the divine and the human united in one person. Okay, Again, paragraph 2 of chapter 8. Uh, so that two whole, right? They're not partial. It's not like sort of a man just gets added, but a, a real man, whole human nature. So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were, were mysteriously 
joined, inseparably joined together in one person. But these two natures, not having conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and men, or God and man. So there's some three things here that I've, three statements that are, that are made. Firstly, we see that, that these natures are inseparably joined, forever joined. There is an inseparable union between God and man into one Jesus. So he's one Jesus, but he is God and man. And the, uh, you don't need to remember these words, but the, they're responding here. One of the things they're dealing with here is something called Nestorianism. And so, so again, oftentimes you look at the heresies of the church, and many of them are Christological heresies, heresies related to Jesus, because men are trying to grapple with this and say, ah, I can't, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It, we have to do something with these two natures. And so Nestorianism said that uh, there were not only two natures, but two persons in Christ. There can't be two natures in one person, so it's really two persons. And that was rejected as a heresy in the history of the church. No, the, the, the Bible teaches that they, the confessors teach that these two natures are inseparably joined together so that Jesus is one who, one person, but he is the dual-natured Redeemer. It then said that these natures are without conversion. So the human and the divine remain two distinct natures. He doesn't become the God-man and there's sort of this, this crazy blend of some mutant movie you might watch or what have you, um, but he still remains fully God and fully man. And this is partially, at least, responding to something called Eutychianism. And this is a Christological heresy that, 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 that taught that the human nature was sort of absorbed into the divine. So he becomes a man, and that's just sort of sucked into the godness, and now he's really divine, and the human nature has been absorbed. Um, it then said that these two natures are without composition or without confusion. Um, and this is, is partially at least responding to something called uh, monophysitism, which taught that Jesus only has one nature, that is the divine nature. Um, listen to this quote. I think this is a, a, a Dr. Renahan, and we'll just about wrap up. He says, The Orthodox Christology is unwilling to allow these compromises, these little tweaks to what the Bible is saying. Error cannot live with mystery. It has to sort it out in one way or another. The Orthodox creeds, in the language adopted by the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration and the Second London, are an attempt, this is what we're trying to do, to hold on to the mystery of the Incarnation by teaching that Christ is truly God and truly man. We're trying to hold on to what the Bible says. The Bible says both our flesh wants to say it has to be something a bit different. How can they remain distinct and yet be one person? But the, the creeds and the Orthodox are trying to just stick with what the Bible reveals. One nature is not converted into the other. They're not composited into one. They're not to be confused with one another, but he is the one person. We may speak of his unipersonality. He is one person in two natures, 
divine and human. He is truly God, truly man, the only mediator between God and man. And he says this is the essence of Orthodox Christology. And as Trev said, we have to just come to this and say hallelujah. Uh, My mind doesn't grasp it all, but this is what the Bible's presenting, and so this is where we bow the knee and submit. Um, One one quick thing I thought was helpful, maybe you will, maybe you won't, Um, but we, we keep talking about natures and persons, right? We say that Jesus has two natures, but he's one person. Right now, this is beyond my. This is beyond me uh, to really give an, an excellent ex- explanation. There's volumes of books written on each of these one words, trying to parse out what the church has understood by this. But when you think about a nature, think about the what of a thing. What is it? That's its nature. What does it mean to be human? To be man? A human being is a is an embodied soul. Right, body and soul with. Rational properties, a mind and a will. That's what it means to be human. So if someone says to you, what are you? You say, well, I'm a man, or I'm a woman, I'm a human being, right? That is your nature. That's what you are. But you're also somebody, right? And when someone says, they don't commonly say, what are you? They'll say, who are you? And you're not going to say, well, I'm a, I'm a human being. You're going to say, I'm Brett or Mike or John. And when we speak about the who of a thing, we're, we're speaking about personhood, right? And so the what is the nature, the who or the I is the person. Nature is what, person is who. You are a human being, but you are also who you are, a distinct person. That's your identity. That's the I or the who of you. And so Jesus has two what's. And one who. And God has one what and three who's. (laughs) And we're not talking about Dr. Seuss here. Um, I heard this from Steve Meister, and I thought it was helpful just if you just think about it for a minute. I know it's sort of like, what? Um, But at the same time, nature is what person is who, right? Jesus has two natures, two what's, two things, if you will, but he has one who. He's one Christ, right? He's not two people. He is one Jesus, but he has two natures in that one Jesus. Now, my mind gets there and I can't get any farther because I'm stuck with a brain that can't comprehend how that makes sense. But that's how we want to say it because that's how the Bible presents it. And we think about God. He is one what? One thing, one substance, one essence, one nature. But he is three who's, three persons, three eyes, if you will, Father, Son, and Spirit. So if someone says, what do you confess about God? Say, Jesus is two what's, one who. God is one what and three who's. I want to read, uh, finish, and close with John chapter 1. And if you have questions or comments, we'll open for that. Let's read the prologue of John's Gospel one of the most glorious passages, one of the most glorious texts ever penned um, in the history of of writing, and certainly one of the mountaintops of the the scriptures. John 1.1, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was 
with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him. 